You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, I'm Nick Corbin. And I'm Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Indeed, friends, today um, we're talking about food and theology, but not with the people that we've talked about food and theology with before. You might know that there's a a food course at Regent College and Jeff Greenman teaches that and Lauren Wilkinson's been a part of that and Lauren and Mary Ruth and lots of people kind of know about this food course, but we're not talking about to anyone at Regent about that. We're talking with Kendall Vanderslice, who is a writer and baker in Durham, not Durham, 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 North Carolina. Yeah, that sounds right. You can, say it however, you, say? you can say it however you want, Claire. Yeah, I know. The accent gets me like, a lot yeah. of, with a lot of things. Um, so you might know Kendall. She's the, she's the founder of the Edible Theology Project, which is an educational media project connecting the communion table to the kitchen table. She's, um, she's a writer for Christianity Today and the Christian Century and Religion News Service and the Bitter Southerner. What mm-hmm. a great. That sounds like an interesting... Uh, Interesting product, interesting uh, publication, but she's also she's on Instagram, and so people you, people probably know her from from that presence. But she's she's done lots of thinking and reflecting and living um, about this intersection of food and theology, and how do we see food explored in scripture, and then how do we how does bread in particular relate kind of to our understanding of God, but also the particularity of communion and the mm. Eucharist as a kind of a key piece for our understanding of of God yeah. and this intersection. Yeah, and just opening up our eyes to how, how sharing a meal together is central to the gospel and uh, to Christ's redeeming work, like even how food, she touches on how food and sharing a meal together is a is a work of, of reconciliation. And so she shares more on that, which was which was super interesting. And then also how, as seen in Genesis, how food can be used for both good and evil. And uh, so Kendall was wonderful. She um, has such a rich background, and uh, I would love to go to one of her workshops or have a meal with her or have a meal prepared by her because sounds like she's an incredible baker and cook. Exactly. So we hope you enjoy our conversation with Kendall Vanderslice. Kendall, welcome to the Regent College podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's so good to be here. It's so good to have you. Um, I feel like I feel a bit Insta famous, you know, like we don't often talk to people who are like Instagram, like, you know, like stars. <laughs> so I feel like famous now by association. It's kind of nice. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> um, do you want to can you tell us a little bit about your journey? How did you sort of develop this kind of interest and in the intersection of food and theology? Yeah, so I have always been interested in food. <laughs> um, and I guess always theology too. In <laughs> retrospect, my parents kind of knew that I would go. They were not surprised that this was the direction I took. <laughs> I did not realize I was interested in theology as early on as I realized I was interested in food. Um, but I I knew sort of from high school that I wanted to go into a career in baking. Um, I had always been fascinated with 
with bread, with the process of baking, with the kitchen. Um, and so after high school, I took a gap year. I kind of had this sort of season of like, what do I actually, what, how do I go about doing what I want to do with my life? Um, and took a gap year and, uh, worked for an organization called Mercy Ships. Mm. Um, and while I was there, well, before I, before I left, I, um, sold <laughs> cookies and cupcakes to raise the funds to buy my plane ticket back home. Um, and in that process, I think it really solidified, like, this is what I actually actually want to do with my life is work with food. Mm. Um, and once I got there, I was, at, they asked, can you bake? Because we need someone to, to bake. <laughs> we need someone oh. to make cookies. Yeah. So I ended up spending this gap year where I was trying to figure out what exactly I wanted to do with my life um, and was given the task of baking on a ship in West Africa. Um, yes. So I, <laughs> you I realized- You were given the task of what you were going to do for I the was, I was. <laughs> so, you know, I, I thought I had these grand ambitions of like, I'm going to, you know, I don't know, figure out how to like fix the world because so many of us that grow up in sort of evangelical churches feel like our call is to somehow fix the world. And I knew I wanted to make bread, but I didn't know how these things fit together. And hmm. it was just this really beautiful way of God saying like, yeah, you can travel and do cool, crazy things, but like also there's value in making food for other people. And um, so that kind of took me down this different road of exploring what what can I do with food? Yeah. Um, I did my undergrad at Wheaton College. I kind of went there kicking and screaming because by that point, I knew I wanted to go into baking. And um, long story short, God had made it very clear that this is where I was supposed to go. And I didn't want to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, I studied anthropology. And in my um, it to me, it was just the most interesting of all the options. Those were the books that seemed interesting to me. And while I was in that program, um, they hired on two new faculty, one who did anthropology of food and one who did anthropology of consumption. Um, and they consumption and material culture. So kind of um, understanding how the things around us shape our sense of who we are. Hmm. Um, and so they just completely opened up my eyes to a different way of thinking about food and learning about food and understanding the role that food plays in our lives. And that really helped to recast my my sense of sort of purpose and vision. Um, so I did go on and have a career in the restaurant industry. I worked as a baker and pastry chef in a number of bakeries and restaurants. But that whole time, I was really interested in some of these more theological questions, cultural mm. questions. Um, so I did a degree in food studies at Boston University. Um, and that's really what helped guide me into these, this more explicitly theological realm. Mm. Um, I would I would attend my classes on weeknights and in every single one of them, somehow the Eucharist came into conversation, mm. whether it was a food history class and it was kind of this strange like ritual or it was, um, you know, a food literature class and it was this imagery that was written, woven into so much food literature. Um, it, it always came into conversation and it, and I was one of the few kind of in my courses who was also weekly participating in the Eucharist. And so mm. I started kind of asking like, what are, what are these meals that I'm studying, this food that I'm studying throughout the week have to do with this meal that I'm sharing on Sunday morning and hmm. how, how can I apply this food studies research to mm-hmm. this particular meal? And what can it, how can it help us better understand why Christ would offer a meal as this cornerstone of Christian yeah. worship? So, mm. Yeah, that so was good. that was how I got in. Yeah, <laughs> and then the rest is history, I guess. <laughs> totally. Then you took to Instagram and other. Then places. I took to Instagram, and yeah. other people were like, "Oh yeah, we think that's cool too." Kendall, <laughs> 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 I feel like within the last like century, there's maybe been this 
fixation on food or and dieting specifically, uh, which isn't bad, but there's like, depending on what circles you run in, there's also like this ascetic appeal to with food. Like there's the popularity of intermittent fasting or, or like counting calories or trying to get on the new diet. And it's not bad, but I wonder if you have thoughts on what this does oftentimes when we just view food simply as like a collection of nutrients, like how's that form and shape us? And then maybe broader, like how should we think about food differently than just like a, maybe a collection of nutrients? Yeah. So, so we can only now think about food sort of in terms of a collection of nutrients Mm -hmm. because we, most of us don't have to think of it as this like resource that's really difficult to acquire, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Mm -hmm. Prior to about 100 years ago, most humans' entire lives are organized around acquiring food, cooking food, eating food. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the cornerstone of life, right? This is we have to have it to live. Um, and it really has been like recent technological, fairly recent in the, the whole of human history innovation that has allowed us to have food that we can acquire pretty easily and also allowed most people to have access to an abundance of food. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a fairly new thing in, in the course of human history that we even could have the concept of like dieting because right. it requires the access to an abundance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what ends up happening when we, when we kind of see food as nothing more than a collection of nutrients is that we also fail to see the gift that food is from God. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we look at this this story in if we look at the creation story in Genesis one and two, that um, food is this like very necessary part of creation, right? Like God created humanity with two fundamental needs. First was to get nutrition from food. Um, we were not given, you know, root systems like plants that could drop nutrients out of soil. We were not given like skin that could convert energy like mm-hmm. like leaves. We have to eat food to acquire nu- nutrition. But the other thing that we see is this fundamental human need in that first those first two chapters of Genesis um, is to be in community with other human beings. Right. The mm-hmm. only thing not called good. The only thing called not good in that creation story was a human being alone. Um, and. Then after this creation of another human being is when creation was called very good. And then the main task of these humans was to delight in God's creation. It was to enjoy God by enjoying God's creation, taking care of God's creation. Um, And the only limitation was a limitation on what they could eat. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was a very, very minor limitation on what they could eat. Mm. Um, So in that, we do see that restriction is not necessarily a bad thing, that restriction is a part of boundaries or a part of how God has created us to flourish in this world, but also that food is the central part of us flourishing and enjoying God's world. Mm -hmm. Um, But then when we look in the story of Genesis 3, we see also food serving as kind of this entry point of the brokenness of the world. And I think when we look at the whole of human history, we see that reality at play that food is both this ongoing reminder of the goodness of God, the gift of God's creation, um, the gift of being created in human bodies in a delicious world. <laughs> uh, mm. But also it is this ongoing sign of the brokenness of creation that yeah. in our relationship to food, we experience the um, the brokenness of our bodies. We experience mm. the brokenness of our agricultural systems, our our economic system. The brokenness of our economic systems is, you know, the ramifications of that extends to to food. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so food is this constant reminder of both the goodness mm-hmm. and brokenness of creation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we when we narrow it down to just these like nutritional, like actual nutrients that we can calculate and and you know restrict or what have you to try and have control over sort of how our bodies appear, I think we're completely losing sight of. Um, the gift mm. of food, the gift of our bodies, the gift of enjoying food, and mm. that serving as a way into relationship with God. Mm. Mm. So good. Um, yeah. It's. I always think it's so interesting that the like the restriction and the and the mm-hmm. gift is food. So God just didn't say, "Don't go over there," or "Don't climb that tree," or "Don't right. talk to that person." Yeah. Actually, the restriction is, "Don't eat that thing," because there's actually something in the act of eating that is that is kind of kind of intrinsically connecting us to God's provision and God's goodness and, and all that. But it's always yeah. that's always so interesting to me. Like the and the act of the act of sin is the act of eating. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. It's just mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. why is it why is it not just don't go that don't walk right. over to that yeah. part of the garden, you know, or whatever. Yeah. God could have said anything. Don't yeah. do that. God could put limited on whatever, but if that's what he Yeah. But the oh, limitation was, yeah, don't eat that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is just fascinating to me. Um and so yeah, you you're talking about that this whole idea of kind of the the being alone, being, you know, not great um, in God's <laughs> creation, but there's, you know, and just can you talk to us a little bit about um, sitting around a table together and eating and how that's different than us just sitting in a circle of chairs, you know, um, and just to chat. There's, you know, I've experienced as soon as you sit down, something automatically changes in the relationship. But can you, what's so powerful about sharing meals? Yeah. So one thing practically just about the difference between sitting in a circle of chairs and sitting at a table um, is that the physical presence of the table creates a barrier that actually creates a sense of safety. Yeah. Um, that when you're sitting mm. just in a circle of chairs and you see one another's, you see one another, kind of your entire body, it's a very vulnerable position to be in. Mm. Um, and it can be awkward. It can be intimidating. Um, it can make it difficult to enter into conversation. But when you have a table, when you have, you know, dishes, like a, a mug of coffee for your hands to hold, it creates a sense of safety physically that allows mm. us to have um, to enter into a bit harder conversations. Mm. But then I think the presence of food itself does something even more. Um Again, on a practical level, it gives you something to talk about when you don't have anything else to talk about. It's kind of like, um, you know, everyone always jokes about like when you don't know what to say, you talk about the weather because the weather is something that we all experience. Like if we're all standing outside together, it's at least one shared experience and and it, it becomes a sort of communal vulnerable act. Um, You have that sense of safety because of the table, but another aspect of vulnerability that um, is helping to facilitate conversation in a way. Um, And it's this kind of reminder together that none of us can exist without meeting this very basic need. Mm. Um, And that this basic need puts us into a relationship um, that relies on other people and Mm. other creatures and other living things in order for us to survive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, So beautiful. Kendall, I wonder if you could elaborate more specifically on why sharing a meal together is so central to the gospel. And and you kind of talked about even the biblical story of of framing up like, okay, in the beginning, God said, you can eat from here, but do not eat. And then I... I wonder if you want to share too, even within the whole gospel framework, like why is why is sharing a meal so important mm. in, in even in the life of Jesus and what he taught and spoke upon? 
Yeah, I mean, we see in, especially the, well, throughout the whole ministry of Jesus, but especially in this Last Supper and then um, the practice of communion that Christians have shared ever since, we see this almost reversal of that story of Genesis mm-hmm. 3, that in Genesis 3, it's this meal that brings death into the world. Um, but then Jesus's death, which is commemorated um, and marked through this meal, is also an ongoing sign of new life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's that this beautiful reversal of Genesis 3 that we then practice every single time we share communion um, and share in this in this meal. But then also these um, sharing meals together as a church is this way of building community and living out the, the life and the work of the church. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we see min- Jesus's ministry taking place around the table throughout the whole story of the mm-hmm. Gospels, right? It's like, I can't remember who said it. Someone said, like, everywhere in the Gospel, Jesus is either leaving a meal, eating a meal, or going to a meal. But, like, <laughs> meals are everywhere. Food is everywhere. And it's... um it is, again, I think it's a pretty new thing that we can arrange our lives in such a way that food is kind of an afterthought, right? Like mm-hmm. most of human history, people have, have to spend most of their time thinking about acquiring or eating food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so when in, in that sense, it just seems natural. Like Jesus is living in an agrarian context. Um, everyone is thinking about food all the time. And so, of course, his parables are going to have to do with the production of food, of course, his actual ministry is going to have to do with with sharing food. But it's also, I think it shows that that God cares deeply about our physical well-being, that God mm. cares about our material needs, um, and that these material needs are being met in this way. But even deeper that that God cares about our culture, that God mm. cares about our cultural expression and our communal gatherings, that it's around the table when we're sharing food, that we share stories of family, share stories of home, that we like have these um, mm. different meals that serve as kind of reminders of of the people yeah. that we come from and, and the foods that they have created. Mm-hmm. So it's that like creative reminder mm-hmm. too of um, of human creativity, which I think is an expression of God's creativity mm. in the food that we make and eat. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the parts I love in, um, at the end of Revelation is, you know, we, you know, the, you know, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock and whoever opens the door, I will, they will come in and I will eat with them and they will eat with me. Like yeah. just that, like mm-hmm. that picture. And so you have this, as you said, this peace in the beginning and then all throughout scripture and throughout Jesus ministry. And then at the end you have this God who's coming to eat mm-hmm. with us. It's mm-hmm. like, Oh man, so yeah. good. Oh yeah. Well, and you also have this imagery of the tree of life that's coming back. Right. And, yeah, yeah. You know, it, there's no tree of knowledge and good of evil, just the tree of life. Mm-hmm. And in this context, the tree, is a tree whose leaves heal nations and that bear its fruit all year round. And mm-hmm. so you have, like when we've seen throughout human history that that our food is kind of this reminder of the brokenness, but also the goodness. In Revelation, we have this tree that's just a reminder of the healing of creation. And mm-hmm. I yeah. love it. Yes, me too. So good. And and kind of on that on that kind of note of kind of healing and reconciling and you're even talking about the table as, a, as sometimes a safe place for hard conversations. In in one of the articles you you've, you've written you say from the soil to the stove to the dining room table, I'm convinced that food lies at the center of reconciling work. Talk to us more about that. How do you see that playing out? Just ex- yeah, expand on that a bit more for us. Yeah, so I think Again, it goes back to that sort of theological picture of food being this ongoing reminder of the goodness and brokenness that, that it's also a tool that can be wielded towards 
harm and also a tool that can be wielded towards healing. Mm. Um, and so we see food being the source of pain for many people. Um, and sometimes that is circumstantial. Um, it is, you know, the, just the results of living in a creation that's groaning for healing, like someone's food allergies or mm. like the lack of food access because of, you know, drought or floods or um, increasing extreme climate events. But then also that can be because of um, people wielding food in harmful ways, whether mm. that's, um, you know, the removal of um, access, kind of purposeful. Yeah choices of where to put grocery stores and where not to put grocery stores mm. or purposeful um, withholding of exports or imports in order to um, keep people from having access to food. Wheat has been a huge source of sort of political wielding throughout history of, um, you know, how wheat gets exported and imported around the world becomes a way of um, wielding political power and, mm. and causing hunger to aid war. Um, mm. And so in that sense, we see that 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 food can be used in this deeply harmful way, but also food can be used in this deeply healing way that mm. um, whether that is, you know, providing for the material needs of other people by helping by sharing food or ensuring, like just distribution of food, um, mm. whether that is, you know, paying attention to the ways that we source and grow our food, mm. um, that that is central to the healing of creation. Um, mm. And then also using meals as a space for conversation, um, for hard conversations that bring us into healing with one another. I think food is kind of at the center of of all of these, mm. of these points. Mm. Mm. Yeah, mm. I even think of that imagery specifically of sharing a meal with a stranger or somebody who you know or know something about and how that in and of itself can be bonding and reconciling, seeing a person in a different light, being able to, yeah, eat a, eat a same meal together. Kendall, one of the things I've heard you talk about, though, in, in speaking on the both the good, but as well as the evil of an abuse of, of food as seen in like Genesis. And then I also think of even Christ's betrayal was that Jesus dipped the, the bread in, in the dish and then gave it to Judas, like even that there, it's used for evil purposes. So I, I wonder how, uh, one of the things I've heard you talk about specifically, and I'd love for you to share more, is on the Eucharist. And it's such a, such a powerful meal, in essence, to be, to be shared together and to remember what Christ has done. But it's also been used throughout church history in, in an abusive way. Can you, can you share on that? Cause I thought what you had to say was very interesting and, and insightful even. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the Eucharist is, you know, the, this central act of the church. And it is one of the few things that Christians around the world throughout history across denominations share in mm. common is this practice of sharing bread and wine. Um, and it is, what is meant to unify us as the church, right? It's in the bread and the wine, like we are made one in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And yet also it has been the point of so much division throughout church history that arguments around the Eucharist, around who should um, who should preside over communion, who should participate in communion, what is happening in communion has been the source of so much 
division throughout mm-hmm. church history um, and has led to really ugly fighting, cross-denominational mm-hmm. fighting. Um, and it's, it's this ironic mm-hmm. tension in this meal. The thing that is meant to unify us has been the source of, of breaking apart. Right. And I think... I think Jesus knew that that would be the case. Um, and I think this, this, di- this isn't something that happened in the Reformation. Like this started way before. Because <laughs> yeah. we see in 1 Corinthians 13 even that, that um, the meal is a source of pain and division for, for the church in Corinth. Not 1 Corinthians 13, sorry, 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm getting it all. Right before the love passage, we have mm-hmm. the the passage about how um, you eat and drink judgment upon yourselves, and mm-hmm. um, and maybe it's Second Corinthians. I'm getting my my actual scripture confused here, so That's, don't quote me on this. Somewhere, somewhere, yeah. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth just um, about their bad practices <laughs> on <laughs> on um, communion, and in that context, you know what's happening is that this um, this. The church typically ate an entire meal together as their sort of main point of gathering, mm. and that was explicitly linked to the, to communion. And in this context, like it was, it was being used as um, the wealthy were eating these elaborate meals, and the poor were being left to the side. And so this mm. this church meal mirrored the larger societal divisions, um, and instead mm. of upending them and flipping them on their head, which is I think what actually. Could, this meal ought to do mm-hmm. um, is to unify us by upending these social divisions. So Paul has a big issue with that, he uses some mm-hmm. very harsh words against that. But I think we see um, that reality play out throughout church history that, that mm-hmm. it's, it's ironic because I think these fights exist because we take it so seriously. Mm-hmm. And yet also in taking it seriously, we ought to, say like this is the thing that unifies us and we have to figure out how to exist together even in disagreement over Mm. what exactly is happening here. We hope you've been enjoying this wonderful conversation but Claire wanted to take a few seconds just to share some ways you could get involved more in the Regent College podcast. Totally we at Regent we love people being a part of the things that we're doing and so there's a couple of different ways you can do that. If you've enjoyed this conversation or any of our other conversations, let someone know. Share it with them. Share it with a family member, with a friend, with someone who you think would appreciate this and would love to hear it. That's the first way. Mm-hmm. Second way, you could you could give us a rating or write a little uh, comment on one of the on wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be another great way. And then the final way that you could uh, participate with us is if you've enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to give a donation to Regent College, then we would warmly receive that. Yeah. You can do that by heading to rgnt.net forward slash give. And, you know, in the comment box, let them know that we sent you. Right, Nick? That's right. We do love hearing when people have appreciated the podcast. And so let you can let Nick know by sending an email to podcast at regent-college.edu. When Nick and I are having these conversations, it's sometimes hard for us to realize that actually people listen to these. And so when we get emails or we get a little note in the comment box on the donation page of our website, it just reminds us that people are actually listening and we love that. So please let us know that you're listening. Let us know if there are things that different profs that you'd like to hear from. We'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation. One of the things I've been thinking about, you know, post-COVID is how we do communion in church, you know, because it's it's changed. If you were, you know, if you had a common loaf for a common cup, you might not. You know, we were joking on another podcast conversation about the, you know, 
you know, like <laughs> yes, yes. the wafer at the oh, top I know, and the exactly. juice at the bottom. I like I wonder how I was like I was like, I wonder what Kendall feels about that. Um but <laughs> I've yeah. got a great story about it actually Tell in us. my in my new book that comes out in February. Oh, okay. So okay. yes, yes. <laughs> we'll have to hold out for it. Yes, you um, gotta hold out, but it's a yeah, really good story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so they they kind of yeah, how that there is there's we lose we we've lost we lose something in in communion being you know, it needed to be. It needs to be done for whatever reason. Like, no worries. But it's just, yeah, that we've we've lot we lose something. And I wonder if you could talk. You do lots of baking, you know. So, you're not, and you're not baking wafers. You know, you're baking bread, and yes. you know, you like you love baking bread. Do you want to? And you've written about the kind of the process of that and how that helps you understand more about God. Do you want to? Do you want to? Can you talk to us about that? How does the kind of the act of baking bread help you understand more of who God is and who we are and yeah. 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 Um, so I, I mean, I love bread. My whole, all of my work here really began with kind of my love of bread um, and trying to understand more how, well, you know, for first just realizing that God consistently meets me in the act of baking bread, realizing that it's this calming act, it's this meditative act, but then digging a little bit further and saying, you know, what, what does, what does this process of baking actually teach me about the character and nature of God and why it is that Christ might call himself the bread of life? Um, mm, and mm. well, I could go on for go forever. I have, you know, 70,000 words on it <laughs> again coming out in February. But um, I, I think the actual the living nature of bread dough is a huge piece of what differentiates it from, you know, any other form of baking mm. or even cooking that you're working with yeast, you're working with something alive. Um, and that learning, learning to bake bread is learning to understand and read the needs of dough and, and the things that it is communicating. And so, mm. you know, learning to bake bread is not just this like skill that you can perfect and then replicate every single time you come bake. It's a craft that you have to hone and you can continue honing it for a lifetime that, mm -hmm. you know, you continue becoming a better baker by practicing baking and, and getting to know this dough a little bit more. Um, I, I like to say that, that bread is incredibly simple and infinitely complex. Yeah, that it's at totally its core, true. <laughs> yeah, it's made of like flour, water, salt, and yeast. And yeah. you could do it without the salt. It might not taste as great. won't have great color, but you can do it. Yeah. You, know, you can do it without the yeast. You can make a wafer or, um, you know, a, an unleavened bread of some kind. So really it can be just flour and water. Mm. But it's also infinitely complex. Humans mm. have been making it for at least 14,000 years, maybe longer, and still have more to learn about the process. Um, and a baker can commit their entire life to baking bread and still have more to learn. And I think that shares, that shows us so much about the life of faith as well. Um, and what to me is a much more beautiful and robust way to consider um, our lives as Christians that that Christianity is not something to then to just master <laughs> and mm. then like we know all the things and then now we're good to go for the rest of our lives. But mm -hmm. um, that it is that our faith is nurtured throughout the course of our lives and there's always more to probe. And that's that's beautiful. Mm. Um, but also that incredible simplicity and infinite complexity, I think, is is beautiful as well, that our faith is incredibly simple. Um, you know, we can sum it up in <laughs> the words of the Apostles' Creed. Like we can sum up our faith in a very few words. And also um, we can, you know, 
theologians can commit their entire lives to like parsing out the intricacies of, mm. you know, Trinitarian doctrine or Christology or what have you. And, and also f- see the beauty and complexity and, and glory of God in that incredible complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a great gift. Yeah, totally. Can you give a vapor? I have not, and oh, I did so not get into the the pandemic, you know, fad of baking bread like a lot of people did. Is that's what you, you've gotten into? It, Claire, no, no, you, I'm no. <laughs> I, I'm so bad at it. I've tried, yeah. like I've tried the sourdough. It's thing. hard. It's, it's hard. hard. So it's hard. I typically, when I teach bread baking, I don't teach sourdough no, because because it's hard, and I want to make bread accessible for folks, and I want to make it something you can actually work into your daily yeah. lives. Yeah. So I teach what I call a, a sourdough on training wheels. Um, yeah. It's a very similar process, a very similar technique, but it uses commercial yeast rather than sourdough yeast. Yeah, Kendall. Yeah, while you're teaching, wise. while you're teaching on sourdough, the the process, and are you also giving little nuggets of truth, like dropping like uh, these bombs of like, oh, this is how I see God and understand God? Or are you just teaching? I do. Yes. Yeah, oh okay. no. Yeah. You know. So I have a workshop I teach called Bake and Pray, mm. um, and it it weaves together this kind of theological and historical view of bread, and also um, the actual practice of baking bread, and then learning how to do that as a spiritual practice. So. It's a lot of fun. I love teaching it. I've been teaching it for six years and I still have fun every single time. This is a personal question. We can edit this out. Are you like making your living off of doing this stuff? Like like, this is like Mm -hmm. a thing that you had and now like you're like you can survive off teaching people and all of that. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And writing obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Doing other things and. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Maybe yeah, I would, I, I would bake bread if I, if I took your class, because then I would have a more rich understanding of baking bread. And even while I'm doing it, I would probably do it more, maybe more prayerfully, thoughtfully. Yeah, be good for your a, spirit as well. Good for as my your, spirit you know, as well. Yeah, body. It's not. Yeah, it's not just. Nutrients. It's not just mm-hmm. so much more. Uh, Kendall, yeah. I wonder, I know that you've talked uh, a lot with people and engaged at different churches in context, but on on the sharing a meal, going back to that and eating in a way that's in, in line with Christ, how have you seen churches do this? How have you seen groups do this? What yeah, I guess I guess what are ways that churches can engage in sharing a meal that would be align align with Christ and his ways and teachings. Yeah, so I first off I think just churches need to get into the habit of actually sharing meals, mm. <laughs> which is something that has long been a practice of church life that like meals have for a long time been central to to mm. church practice. Um and it has really fallen out of practice in the last I don't I don't know exactly when it started falling out of practice but it is um now covid has certainly amplified it but even before that it was uh, you know if churches were having regular meals together they were viewed as kind of a um an optional add on to to mm. you know community was kind of this this optional component of church life rather than a central part of what it means to live as the church. Mm-hmm. Um, so really at its most basic, I think churches just being intentional about eating together and saying like, this is an important part of how we live our lives together. Mm-hmm. 
is, is the most important thing. Um, I do think that that is done more easily when there is a little bit of formality around it. Um, and so, you know, a just totally informal meal can be pretty intimidating sometimes for some folks. So whether that is like immediately after a church service and it becomes part of this invitation of the church service is like join for this meal. Um, that can be really helpful having discussion prompts or discussion sort of points as part of the meal to help engage, you know, continue talking about the sermon or the scripture reading can be really valuable. Mm. Um, or having it as be part of a small group setting that mm-hmm. this is the rhythm of your small group is sharing meals together um, and and building relationship around the table. Mm-hmm. I think those are are really significant pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think we can also you can get into these more complex questions of um, you know, how do we make sure that the meals that we're sharing are ones that that are not harming creation mm, or harming right. communities versus healing. And again, that gets way more complicated because um, our, our food is always, we have to remember that our food always exists in kind of the, the reality of a broken creation. And mm. that um, I think it's for each community to discern for themselves, like how do we source our food? How do we prepare our food? Who is supported and who is potentially harmed by the food that we are consuming? Um, and everyone needs to do the best they can within the limitations, the mm-hmm. very real limitations they have, be that mm-hmm. time limitations, financial limitations, limitations of access. If you're mm-hmm. in a rural context and all your food you know, comes from either a roadside stand or the Dollar General, the meals you're going to serve are going to be very different than someone mm-hmm. who's in maybe an urban area and has a farmer's market right there all the time or someone who lives in the midst of, you know, farms with all kinds of diverse production. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have this uh, food course at Regent and uh, I haven't taken it yet, but uh, I've talked with people who have taken it and somebody who's taken it now. And uh, she was so kind and 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 generous as as they had, I think they had recently gotten done talking about the sustainability of eating meat, specifically uh, mm-hmm. um, red meat, um, even chicken or pork. And I'm like sitting there eating eating a, a whole chicken breast, like I had just cooked myself a chicken breast. And uh, and so we're just we're just talking about this. And I, I liked how you framed it, though, Kendall. Is like we live in a broken world, and there are our realities to to where we live and what we grew up eating and everything. Um, but on the same on the same token, is like being able to thoughtfully uh, think about what we're consuming and how this is impacting uh, our world. Um, so I yeah, I'm not like a full on vegetarian, but <laughs> I have tried to limit my, my meat intake just based on some of the information that I've heard on the sustainability of, mm-hmm. of eating meat and the consumption that specifically in the North American context, how much meat we consume. So I don't know if you have thoughts on that yeah. or. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's, um, this is where the conversation again, it gets very complicated mm-hmm. and I think it is, um, up for each person to discern for themselves. And, and I know that throw, that word can get thrown a, around a lot, but I really do encourage people to be mm. prayerful about what do you feel, mm. what do you feel called to? Is there a way in which you feel convicted that you should not eat in a particular mm-hmm. manner? Um, 
I work a lot with folks with food allergies or folks that come out of um, histories of eating disorders um, or folks who come out of histories of, of a lot of lack in food access. And so, um, you know, learning to see food as a gift and something to enjoy mm-hmm. and delight in and not as something um, something constantly exhausting is mm. a huge step. And so I'm very wary to put any limitations um, or recommend any limitations because someone coming out of that context, you know, that that can be really harmful in, in, in one way. But then for someone else um, who does have the capacity to research and learn and act and acquire food in a very thoughtful way, mm. um, I think that there's a huge gift in in doing that. And it's, it is a way of honoring God mm. by caring for God's creation yeah. by being thoughtful about the sourcing of your food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 One of the critiques could be, oh, is this is a privileged conversation, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah. And there's an extent to which, as you say, like if you're, if, now even the nutrient conversation that you were saying right. at the beginning, it's like it's become it's become mm-hmm. a thing because we've got so much abundance that we can actually have that conversation. So it's there's it's as you say, the comp the conversation gets really complex mm. really fast. It does. Um, it does. Particularly in terms of people's experiences and mm. yeah, of of eating and as you say, allergies or eating disorders or whatever. It's just putting limitations on it is is unwise, you yeah. know, for one person to put limitations on someone else, but right. to think as well as best we can, thoughtfully and prayerfully. And yeah, um, yeah you have to start with one thing. I've done the food course, mm-hmm. Nick. So mm. um, you, you, you're you like, oh, my goodness, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. What about <laughs> this? Now I don't know how to do that. Like I can't eat anything. I can't eat. I will just eat carrot, you know. Like, yeah. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah. But what is it? Well, only I, if it's in season. Like don't eat a yes, carrot if it's yes. not in season and you didn't grow it. Like- so I I worked with a, um, a cohort of undergrads while I was in graduate school who were in a whole a semester long program all around food. So all of it was kind of like a domestic study abroad, we called it, where all of their courses were built around the same topic. But mm-hmm. it was anthropology courses, history courses, literature courses and environmental um, science courses. And there were several students in the group who um, were either first generation immigrants to the United States um, or grew up outside of an American context. And for several of them, you know, they got they they learned about the climate impact of of meat and they became deeply concerned about consuming meat. Um, And several of them started um, kind of became increasingly more, if not vegetarian, at least like increasingly vegetarian meals. And then we got close to Thanksgiving and Christmas and they started to say like, well, wait a minute, what does this mean for my Mm -hmm. meals with my family? Like Mm -hmm. I can't eat the food of Mm -hmm. my home. I can't Mm -hmm. eat the food of my family if I'm, if I'm eating in this particular way. And, um, then it becomes a question of, you know, who really, who defines what is, it's the same question as the, the issues of defining healthy, who defines mm-hmm. what's healthy, who defines what's most sustainable, and, and mm-hmm. how how have we come to these definitions? Mm-hmm. Um, and are there things that we can learn from indigenous communities about, mm-hmm. you know, growing food in a more um, sustainable manner that, that does include a relationship to eating meat? And, you know, there's there's just so much to continue probing and learning. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah. 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 And like sort of on this, it's kind of, it's, I think it's sort of related, but this whole idea of kind of feasting and fasting Mm -hmm. and, um, that we see that in the biblical story, we see this, there, there are restrictions and limitations at certain times in a community and that kind of thing. And so, and you've said Christian fasting and feasting is kind of the, is the ultimate anti-consumerist response. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? 
Yeah. So again, it goes back to that sort of idea of, of abundance that our mm. consumerist society, we have this abundance. And, and so this idea that we should be able to consume what we want when we want it, um, is very bit built into, um, you know, for us here in the United States, a, a very sort of, um, American independence right. idealism. And I'm sure that that similar sort of independent spirit exists, <laughs> uh, in Canada as well. But, um, yeah. we, we just have this sense that like our, cons- our consumption is a part of our freedom, this ability to be independent. Um, and that these rhythms of fasting and feasting challenge our relationship to consumption. It says mm. that there are, there are seasons for fully deeply delighting in food and there are seasons for, restriction for for understanding that the the withholding of something helps us deeper appreciate um the sharing of it that that actually our feasting can't be true feasting without fasting because we can't deeply enjoy something if we haven't taken a break from it um mm. for a time and i think that challenges the narrative of a consumerist society which is mm-hmm. um which is that you know goodness comes in in endless access to something. Right. Hmm. Yeah. As if, and it's as if it's, it's that thing as well that like something is good, more mm-hmm. is better and abundance is the best, you know, mm-hmm. as if like that's mm-hmm. like, it's like, actually that's totally not true. That's not right. <laughs> but it, it is, I think, I think Christians, um, especially today because fasting is not as built into yeah. the rhythms for most churches. Um, it's seen as like, almost a bad thing like people people don't want to do it or mm. some people are scared of it it's like just seen it as just um ritualistic or um you know fear that it's kind of treated as some way of trying to earn god's um mm. god's repentance which it is not um but but when we look at you know historically Fasting has been a part of Christian practice um, and food restriction. Food restriction is a part of almost every religious tradition that having sort of an identity built around what we do and do not eat um, is built into almost every religious practice. Um, and it, of course, was built into Jewish practice. And so within mm. Christianity, we have um this like shifting of food restrictions and it's strange almost that Christianity doesn't have dietary restrictions in mm. it. Um, that instead we are defined by this one meal that we do share, which is this bread mm. and this wine. Um, and so I think mm. understanding within that context that like we have incredible freedom <laughs> that doesn't exist in most, most other religions in sort of the ways that we eat. And I think sometimes that um, keeps us from really recognizing the value of restriction and that fasting and feasting is a rhythm of of restriction and then delight that can form us spiritually in good ways and draw us into relationship with God in good ways as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Good. Kendall, I have a question that's kind of off the cuff. You might need to think about it for a sec because you, you've probably experienced many meals with people. I have, and yes. many <laughs> very good meals. But I'm wondering if you have like a say a f- like a favorite or best experience or one of the best experiences of sharing a meal. Like what was it? Who was there? What was the what was the context? Hmm. Oh, it's hard to define a best. Mm. 
I mean, part of my job is I get to travel and share meals with people all the time. Totally. <laughs> so, which is truly a gift. I've gotten to have just some incredible meals and incredible conversations. Um, one that I think of as it was not necessarily the most delicious meal. I have no idea what we talked about really over this meal. But when I was, uh, I do think actually, in retrospect, it shaped a lot of how I sort of approach and view my work. Um, when I was doing my gap year after high school, working with Mercy Ships, um, on Thanksgiving, my cabin, um, so I lived in a cabin with with seven other women, um, and we all... You know, there Americans made up maybe forty percent of the people on the ship. So we had a, they had a Thanksgiving like they served American Thanksgiving food on Thanksgiving um, day, but it wasn't really a like holiday on the ship. And so mm. for for the Americans in my cabin, we all this was we were all eighteen. It was our first Thanksgiving mm. away from home, and and for all of us, it was like man, this is like we we felt the loss of family at that mm-hmm. time. So we were able to get a room, a small room reserved, and we um got we got all of our food from dinner and brought it up to that room, and we had this Thanksgiving meal with our whole cabin, and so it was. Three of us were American, and then we had one Canadian, um, one person who'd grown up in Korea, one person who'd grown up, um, I think, in Guatemala, and so a, mm-hmm. a, a few different countries represented. And it became this opportunity for us to sort of tell the story of our own families and our own traditions, but also to realize, um, kind of, to realize how much this meal meant to us and the stories mm-hmm. wrapped up in mm-hmm. it. Um, and then it became this interesting talking point. It became the room for our roommates to kind of challenge some of the narratives that we had grown mm-hmm. up hearing. Right. And um, it was just a really fascinating realization of how these specific foods and the stories behind them could shape our identity in ways that we didn't realize mm-hmm. until we tried to share that with other people and it became yeah. very apparent. Yeah. 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 Uh, yes, so neat. Maybe. What what I was, when you were talking about sharing meals earlier and, and uh, the church engaging, I, w- I was thinking about my own personal experience. And it's interesting that you said like a Thanksgiving meal with almost strangers was, was one of your, um, best or whatever, you know, enjoyable meals is I I was also reflecting on my own uh, life and being able to share meals with strangers and how some of those are actually my favorite meals. I love my family. I love the upbringing. I I love that I was able to share a meal weekly, daily with my family, but being able to kind of share a meal with strangers almost I don't know. It, it it helps me put things into perspective, both of the goodness and foundation of which the Lord has uh, been faithful in my life, but then also like to see maybe maybe a different way of viewing things or like a different way of, mm. of seeing things, maybe a better way also of experiencing something and the goodness in that. And so to be able to grow in that, that's what I was processing too. So it's interesting that you mm-hmm. said a Thanksgiving meal with strangers. With strangers, I thought, yeah. yeah. It's, it's beautiful. I, I mean, I, I really do think that the... The meals that I've gotten to have with people across across North America, both in the United States and in Canada, as kind of as part of my work, really has been an incredible gift to me, especially in the last um, the last six years. You know, especially here in the United States, these last six years politically have led to a mm-hmm. lot of mm-hmm. um, of questions and concerns in regards to faith for so many Christians who've um, who who just feel confused about kind of the the narratives they heard growing up versus what they're seeing acted out in the church um, and mm-hmm. in politics today. And I, I have watched so many 
so many of my friends and peers and colleagues just lose faith and mm. and feel deeply unmoored in their relationship to faith because of what they've seen acted out on sort of this public sphere. Um, but I've had the real gift over the last six years to spend most of that time sharing meals in small churches mm. all across the continent. Um, and just hearing, hearing the f- reflections and seeing the faith practices of Christians who are just deeply rooted to their communities mm. um, in ways that seem small, maybe, and seem mundane, maybe, but um, just being able to see the kinds of conversations that are taking place at small tables and small churches all across the country mm. has been an incredible gift and an incredible mm. reminder of like the Holy Spirit is working mm-hmm. in in people and in places that we can't see. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, it's a, also a reminder, you know, so many people that I get to eat one meal with, um, but that meal is, is almost always a really beautiful, sometimes awkward, usually awkward, mm-hmm. but also beautiful experience. Um, but also a reminder that, you know, I, I, I believe in the new creation. I believe in the resurrection and I believe that um, we will feast together again in God's presence. And this is just a small foretaste of that. And that's mm. really a true gift. Beautiful. Totally. One of the things we, that, that a song I learned here at Regent um, Are you gonna is, sing it? Yeah, I'm not going to sing it. Come on. <laughs> no, Come I'm not going to. I'll say the words, though, because it's beautiful. But it's it's in the tune of the doxology. But it's, and Claire, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's be present at our table, Lord. Mm. Be Have you heard it, Kendall? I have, yes. Yeah. I actually have some good friends who this is their prayer before every meal. Oh, and really? so I sing it okay. every time I'm over there for dinner. It's yeah. not, it must, I don't know where it came from. I'm, I, I guess I can't just give credit to Regent alone if it came from somewhere. I don't know. You got to keep going though. Keep going. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's be present at our table, Lord, be here and everywhere adored, abide in us and grant that we may feast in paradise with thee. Mm-hmm. So good. It's beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. I've got chills just hearing yeah. it said. Mm. Totally. Mm. <laughs> Next time he'll sing it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Kendall, you said that, you know, you, you can't master the art of baking bread. But other than bread, what's your favorite thing to bake and why? Ooh. I love making cakes. <laughs> I haven't made one in a long time, but it's just so fun. Mm. Um, yeah, it's I love decorating cakes. I, I just have there's something very soothing about frosting a cake mm. um, and smoothing out the frosting. And yeah, that's you know, yeah, that's a lot of fun. Yes, oh, yes, I do. I do. Yeah, totally. yeah, so I I will only do wedding cakes for friends. Um, I have had people ask if you know I can if I can make wedding cakes and. I decided early on that I only ever wanted to make them for friends because in part because there's it's so much work, it's never worth the money. Mm-hmm. Um, but in part because I wanted it always to feel deeply special to make mm-hmm. to make wedding cakes. And um, I love it. I have made wedding cakes for some of the people that mean the most to me in mm-hmm. life. And so having kind of that cake baking be something that's always reserved for the people that I love most is mm-hmm. wow. I just love it. That's so great. So good. Kendall, is there anything else that you wanted to you wanted to say before we before we wrapped up here? You, we've covered a lot of ground. We have. We've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think so. Okay. That's great. Thanks so much. Has anyone ever commented on your last name being sliced? Yes. 
yes, having yes. slice in it. Yeah, I figured yes. someone would have. <laughs> yes, yes. People, it's so people do comment. I know it is. I don't think I had any other choice uh, in that's right. Yeah. In, in career path, it was ordained. So for you. it was ordained yeah. for me that this was the direction I was meant to go. <laughs> that's so great. So good to talk with you, Kendall. Thanks so much Absolutely. for taking time amidst busy life and various other things. We're Absolutely. For Thank you for having me. I would love to share briefly, I guess, for mm, um, yeah. for folks who might want to continue engaging with, mm, with this work. Um, yeah. So my organization is called the Edible Theology Project, and we develop resources for churches, families, and individuals that connect the communion table to the kitchen table. So um, we do have a weekly podcast called Kitchen Meditations. So if you want to continue reflecting on the ideas, that's a great way to do it. Um, but then we also have a curriculum coming out soon called We're at the table, and it's a small group Sunday school curriculum um, that explores the role of meals in scripture and then helps folks to use the table um, to, to explore their own relationship to food and use that as kind of a prompt into harder conversations. So, mm-hmm. um, if anyone is interested in that, you can learn more at our website, www.edibletheology.com. Great. Awesome. So good, Kendall. Thanks so much. Enjoy the Absolutely. rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. You all yeah. too. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening to the Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.